just want to remind you, the purpose of this book is not to satisfy carnal curiosity about end-time pro end prophecies, talk about Russian leaders, Roman Catholic popes. That's not the whole theme of this book. This whole theme is to show Christ seated on the throne, the victorious king who conquered death. Amen? We can become so enticed and in love with the world, and we forget it's a harlot heading to the lake of fire. Stop dreaming about your living your dream and your dream house and your dream car and your dream job and your dream life. Jesus never promised to prosper your marriage. He never promised that your bank account will be prosperous. But He promised one thing. The call is come out of Babylon. This place is heading to the lake of fire. And with the dragon, the Babylon is this world system that promises you a bunch of things but just gives you death. Would you please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19? Revelation chapter 19. Let's start in verse 11, and we're going to walk through to chapter 20 until verse 3. So if you can, I want to invite you to stand if you can. Here's the word of the Lord. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called out to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for, a, for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men and flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who, is, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast to those who worship its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Let's continue. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing once again. Father, we, we come before you and we need you. Please help us. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. I pray that you'd place chains in my mouth, that my mouth would be connected to your word. Help me to not deviate from your truth. So guard me, and I pray to guard the congregation. We, we all here have responsibilities before you. I have the responsibility to preach faithfully, and the congregation has the responsibility to listen faithfully. So help us. We need you. We pray they would be magnified during this time. We are hungry children, and we want you to feed us. Give us your bread, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some of you might be asking, I came here for an Easter service, and why are you reading that nasty text? What has Easter to do with birds gorging on flesh? And then a dragon with chains and a key and a bottomless pit. I thought that Easter was about treats, chocolate, a happy Sunday. And I hope as we go through this passage that you will see the glory of Christ and how marvelous this text is in light of Jesus' resurrection. That's what I hope to do here. So here's the outline of this morning's sermon. First, we're going to have some just introductory observations about the book of Revelation. And then we're going to come to the context of Revelation 20. And my plan was to do verses 1 through 6. But we'll probably just do 1 through 3. So in 1 through 6, what you have is the result of the resurrection of Jesus on earth. That's verses 1 through 3. And then... Verses 4 through 6 is in heaven. What happens when the saints die faithfully for Christ? But out of respect for your time, we might just be able to do verses 1 through 3. So let's, let's start. And the first question is, why the book of Revelation on Easter? Right? Why should we be looking at Revelation? This book is so strange. This book is just... So scary. Why should we be looking at Revelation during Easter? And the reason is very simple. Very simple. First of all, I just want to remind you that the book of Revelation 
is not about carnal speculations of world events. It's not about the rapture of the church. It's actually a book about the resurrected and triumphant Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. The victorious Jesus Christ. And the first verses will help us to understand what this book is all about. In verse 1 of chapter 1, that's the heading of the book, the revelation, the revelation, the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the removing of the veil, of whom? Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So the first thing you need to know is that this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's showing us who Jesus is and what he's doing in heaven right now. John, the author, is showing us through symbols and signs and images through this book how Jesus, by his resurrection, has become the King of kings and Lord of lords. The resurrected and ascended Jesus reigns over all these fears of creation. There is nothing that's outside his rule. That's what Revelation is showing us. We see that, for example, in verse 5 of chapter 1. Right at the outset of the book, Jesus is identified as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And right here we have his death, resurrection, and ascension. The faithful witness throughout the book of Revelation implies that he died faithfully. It's a synonym for dying. The faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus. And the ruler, because of his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and he's now reigning. Thomas Reiner, he says, and I think it's very fitting what he says. He says, Revelation is a fitting conclusion to the canon of the scriptures. It's a fitting conclusion to the Bible. God's kingdom is established in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus as the lion and the lamb won the victory over the dragon, the ancient serpent, by virtue of his cross and resurrection. As the slain lamb, he opens the seals that unfold all of history and bring it to its culmination. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls show that God and his Christ are sovereign over all. So you think about the book of Acts. Let me just try to help you. If you think about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is actually, we, we, we often say the book of Acts of the Apostles, right? It's a better way of looking at the book of Acts is the Acts of the Reason Jesus. In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, you have what Jesus is doing on earth. In the book of Acts, that's, uh, it's volume two, is what Jesus is doing in heaven. But in the book of Acts, you have what the reason Lord is doing from a narrative perspective. So you come to the book of Acts and you can see what the Lord Jesus is doing from his throne. From a narrative. When you come to the book of Revelation, you have what Jesus is doing from his throne. But not through a narrative. Through a very different literature. It's apocalyptic, full of symbols. But it's the same thing. It's showing what Jesus is doing as the resurrected king. So please turn with me to chapters 4 and 5. Let me just help you see what this book is all about. And that's going to help you see what Revelation 20 is all about. All right. So Revelation chapters 4 and 5, 
as you come to Revelation 4 and 5, that's the heart of the book of Revelation. Think about the heart pumping. All the life is flowing from chapters 4 and 5. And in chapter 4, you can see, after this, I look and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So what John sees here in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is that the door to heaven was open. So John can see that the throne is occupied with Jesus. It's very different from the... Remember, the women come to the tomb of Jesus and the stone is rolled away. The door is open so they can see that the tomb is empty. Now the heavens are open, the door is removed so he can see that the throne is occupied by Jesus, the one who came out of the grave. Revelation 5 shows that Jesus' resurrection gave him the power to sit upon the throne and to judge the world with righteousness. The lamb who was slain is now standing victoriously as the lion. And to him is giving all the authority to open the scrolls. And in the scrolls is the history of mankind. He's in charge. So because of the resurrection of Jesus, the world is not running meaningless. Sometimes people think that the world is just running in meaningless cycles. No. The book of Revelation helps us to see that there is no meaningless cycles. The king is ruling history. He's moving history to the consummation of all things. Instead of running or moving in meaningless cycles, the world is running to a fatal collision with the one who conquered death and now sits as the judge of the world. And if you think about John and the whole New Testament, it's flowing from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the great expectation, the great hope of the Old Testament was that the Messiah would come. And when the Messiah comes, there will be a new covenant, a better covenant. And with this covenant, there would be forgiveness of sins. And more than that, the kingdom of God would be established. And that's what John is showing us. John is showing that Christ is risen and the kingdom has been established, the kingdom of God. Jesus is reigning. Though on earth things seem to be moving in a disastrous and deadly way for the church because of persecution, false teaching, from heaven we see that Jesus is controlling everything. Nothing is outside his rule and reign. He has the eyes of fire. He sees everything. And... Uh, uh, just want to remind you, the purpose of this book is not to satisfy carnal curiosity about end-time pro end prophecies, talk about Russian leaders, Roman Catholic popes. That's not the whole theme of this book. This whole theme is to show Christ seated on the throne, the victorious king who conquered death. Amen? As just a, one more observation. It's important to see and understand that the book of Revelation has recapitulation. So what John does here, there, there's no way for you to read the book of Revelation as a straight chronology. Otherwise, you have the end of the world six times. So don't try reading the book of Revelation as a straight chronology. Actually, John, he's following, he says that this is a prophecy. He says that this book is a prophecy, and he's following after the pattern of the prophetic writers. And the prophets, they would talk about the same subject from different angles. They recapitulate the same message. Have you not read the book of Isaiah? And then there is prophecy against Edom. Prophecy against Babylon. And then you continue reading. And then Isaiah speaks again about prophecy against Edom. 
prophecy against Babylon, prophecy against Assyria. He's doing, wait a second, is that a new message of doom? No, he's recapitulating. The Old Testament prophets, that's Hebrew. Hebrew uses a lot of repetition because God knows that we need to hear over and over again the same thing. So John is showing the conquest of the resurrected Christ through different angles, with different perspectives. And there is an intensification, but it culminates with the consummation of all things. Uh, Craig Coster, he says, an outline of the book of, of Revelation looks like a spiral, with each loop consisting of a series of visions, seven messages to the church, seven seals, seven trumpets, then you have unnumbered visions, then you have seven plagues, more unnumbered visions. And then he says, visions celebrating the triumph of God take place at the end of each cycle. And that's basically how he shows that the, the message of Revelation takes place. Uh, one other scholar, Alexander Stewart, he says, the visions in Revelation often, often repeat themselves. They are not exact replicas, of course, but they cover the same time period, events, and themes from various per perspectives and with different degrees of detail. That's very important. That's why we have the end of the world five times in the book of Revelation. Uh, and you see that, for example, when we contrast Revelation 12 with Revelation 20. It's the same story from different angles. It's the same story. The, con the conquest of Jesus. Remember, the dragon is trying to kill the baby. The baby man, the male child. And then what happens? He's taken into heaven. And once he's taken into heaven, what happens to the dragon? He's cast down. Same thing we see in Revelation 20. So, just to help you so you know my understanding of the book of Revelation and where I'm coming from to explain to you. I just want to put the cards on the table. So, let's go to the context of Revelation 20. That's going to be our passage. And you see, you can see even in your Bibles, you please look in your Bibles. The, the context here is very important because we come to chapter uh, 16, dealing with the bowls of God's wrath. And then in chapter 16, verses 17 through 21, he talks about the wrath on Babylon. And then in chapter 17, we have the fall, the wrath upon Babylon described. And then in chapter 18, we have a song of lament for the fall of Babylon. And then in Revelation 19, we have a song of celebration of the fall of Babylon. And, and similar to a banquet, a wedding feast. And then suddenly, in verses 11 through 21 of chapter 19, and you can see in your Bibles, that's where we start reading early this morning. Then you have what takes place, especially in the Roman context. Was that when a Roman emperor, a Roman general, would go and, for example, fight the barbarics, or think about uh, Caesar, he went to Africa and he, con he conquered Africa, part of Africa. When he came back to Rome, do you know what he would do? He would parade through Rome in his chariot with the slaves showing his conquest. And that's what we have Jesus doing here. The one who conquered Babylon, now parading, 
showing that he is the one who conquered. And you think about Babylon. What is Babylon? Throughout these scriptures, Babylon is a picture of the city of men against the city of God. Babylon, following the pattern of the Old Testament, is the city of men opposed to the city of God. It drinks the blood of the saints. It functions as, functions as the center of anti-God culture. It's pictured as a harlot. Why? Because a prostitute offers you a pleasure that's not real. And they should not have it. And that's the picture of idolatry. It's idolatry. It's offering you something that it's not real, that only God can give. So Babylon is the personification of the kingdom of this world who wars against the kingdom of God. And then in... So there is this wrath, there is this conquest over Babylon. And then we have Jesus parading, starting chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Jesus parading as the one who conquered Babylon. So it's this beautiful picture of Jesus on his white horse. Uh, Caesar would be parading his chariots with his white horses too. John is just it's kind of polemic, playing against Rome. Here is the true king of kings. And John describes Jesus with the rod of iron in verse 15, you can see. And that goes back to chapter 12, 15, where we heard that he ascended and he got the rod of iron. But what is fascinating, look with me at verse 13 of chapter 19. Verse 13 of chapter 19. And we see that his clothes, his robes, are already dipped in blood. But wait a second, I thought that there was going to be a battle. Right? But his, his clothes are already stained with blood. Why? Because he already conquered. He fought. In his cross, his crucifixion, his resurrection. The reason and victorious Jesus already has his blood on his robe because he already won the battle. So, Craig Coaster, he says, Jesus' robe is already dipped in blood and he has a crown. You see, he already has a crown. Why? He already conquered. Jesus' robe is already dipped in blood and he has a crown on his head because he already fought and won the battle. What John now sees, however, is that the divine warrior is Christ who wears garments soaked in his own blood which was shed for people of every nation. Chapter 5. And you see that he assembled the birds. The birds are already coming because the, the corpses are already dead. That's why the birds are already there coming. There is no battle. We think you're going to have a battle, right? Oh, there's going to be a battle. And suddenly there is no battle. Why? Because he conquered. He's showing that Jesus has already conquered. He's seated on the throne. He's ruling. And the question is, as you come to Revelation 19, wait, did Jesus already conquer Babylon? The New Testament is going to say yes. He's far above all rule and empire. According to Daniel chapter 7, he conquers the beast in his resurrection when he ascends on the clouds of heaven and he sits on the throne. Look how Paul says. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, that through his death and resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that's the same language that, Paul, that, that John is using here of Jesus as this general 
doing the, the parade, the triumph parade of showing and displaying his victory. And, sh- and look at that, Paul is not talking about a future parade. It's a past one on his cross and resurrection. He triumphed. So John and Paul are speaking about the same thing here. John is saying that though evil seems to prevail, when heavens are open, we are able to behold the truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death, he is reigning. And nothing can stop him. And that's stuff. So you think about, as we are moving to chapter 20, think about the church receiving this letter, hearing. You'd think that, okay, he conquered Babylon, the wedding feast. All right, so now it's time to go back and celebrate. And John gives a pause. There is a time between Jesus' conquest of Babylon and the final consummation, the final feast that we're going to have. And that's what John shows us what's taking place in this between time, and that's chapter 20. Jesus is victorious. Babylon, the beast, and the false prophet have been judged. This is the end, right? And John says, not yet. Already, but not yet. There is work to be done. If God's city is to be peopled with, with all for whom Christ died... The nations must be undeceived so that they can bring their glory into the city of God. And that's all we see now in chapter 20. As we move to chapter 20, let me move out of here. John says, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Remember, that this time is the time of the inauguration and anticipation of the consummation. Jesus is reigning. He has conquered. But he has not brought into consummation all his victory. Similar to, you, you have heard about the V-Day, D-Day and the Victory Day. And the same thing with the war. There was victory inaugurated. And Hitler knew he had no power. He had no way. But the consummation came one year later. And that's what we see similarly with the victory of Christ. Victory was inaugurated in the cross and resurrection. And the time is coming for the victory to be consummated. So he said that he sees an angel coming from heaven. And you can just look at the verse here. The angel has key, chain, they have dragon, they have locking, have a bottomless pit. And that alerts us that it's all symbolic what John is doing here. Not like the angel is coming with a real key and a real chain, and now he's going to chain this real dragon. No, it's all symbolism that he's using. And the angel comes from where? From heaven. Who is in heaven? Who is seated on the throne? And where is his throne? In heaven. He, this, this angel comes as a servant of the king who is reigning. Jesus is extending his kingdom from heaven, and he has a key and a chain. A key, what does key represent? Authority, power, right? If you have your car key, it means that you can drive that. Authority. And that's what we have here, authority of Jesus over the bottomless pit, over the dragon. I like what Gregory Beale says. He writes, the key is the same as the keys of death and Hades, held by Christ as a result of his resurrection. 
This key's function now to place Satan under restraint during the church age, which started with the resurrection. The key is also identified with the key of David, which Christ used to protect the faithful church in the present age from Satan's devices. And notice that there is an abyss. So he has chains, he has an abyss. The great chain here is, is the same chain that used for Paul and Peter when they are arrested. That's a picture of a Roman chain. And the abyss is similar to Alcatraz. That's the prison where the dragon is placed. And then the fact that he's holding his hand means that he's, already, he's ready to put into action. And it says that he sees the, the, the dragon, the ancient serpent. Let me go here to verse 2, because now he starts naming who this dragon is. And he says that the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Four titles for the same arch enemy. And these four descriptions is very important. Dragon reflects that the, this enemy is powerful, ugly, fearful, ferocious. The dragon implies his beastly character. He's not caring. The ancient serpent reminds us of Genesis as a cunning, deceptive enemy. The devil, he's the slanderer of the saints. And he's Satan, he's the adversary, the accuser. So... Satan devours like a dragon, and he deceives like a snake. That's how Satan loves to attack. And remember that the same fourfold description of Satan we find in Revelation 12, taking us and causing us to put together these two scenes. And the angel sees the dragon and bound him. Satan being taken into custody right now. And notice that this angel is not named... And he has no fight with the dragon. It's very simple. He comes with a chain, and there is no fight. This ferocious dragon, so easily chained. Why? Because he was already defeated with Christ. The dragon's defeat happened at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus bound the strong man when he raised from the dead. And he says that and he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. Brothers and sisters, everything is symbolic so far. Why are you going to come to the number 1,000 and suddenly make it literal? That makes no sense. If everything so far has been symbolic, why are we going to come here and make this number a literal number? And when you look at the rest of the scriptures that talk about the... the 1,000, it's often symbolic. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore the Lord your God, who, God who is faithful, who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments to a thousand generations. So what happens with the 1,001? He stops being faithful? It's symbolic of a long but definite period of time. Psalm 50, verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So what happens on the cattle on a thousand and one hill? It's no longer his. No, it's symbolic. He's using symbolism, the number. I think the best one is 2 Peter 3.8, because people are mocking that Jesus is not coming. And Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as one thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So the number one thousand, it speaks of a long 
specific, determined, and complete period of time. In Revelation, the number 10 is a very important number, and it's 10 times 10 times 10, number 3 also. So that's all we have here. We need to be careful in, in coming in a book where there's so much imagery and symbolism and suddenly make that literal. But I think what is going to help us is to understand why he was bound for a thousand years. And says, And the angel threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him, so that, here's the reason, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And notice what the angel does. He bound, he bound, he threw, he locked, and he sealed. The fourfold actions match the fourfold name of this enemy. And notice the purpose. So that, so that in order that, he might no longer deceive the nations. There is nothing in this text about 1,000 years so the prophecies and the promises of old Israel to be fulfilled. I'm, I'm sorry, you don't find anything in this text. That you need a thousand years for the Lord to fulfill His promises of the Old Testament. You've got to add that to this text. Because this text doesn't say anything. The text actually implies that prior to this binding and imprisonment. Satan was deceiving the nations, the Gentiles. The Greek word planao there to deceive. Interesting word. Strain from the truth. It carries the concept of wandering without purpose. And that's how people with Christ, without Jesus are. People without Jesus, they are wandering without purpose. They have no purpose in life. Because the purpose of life is to glorify our God. And notice the, the nature of Satan's binding. The, the text never says that Satan cannot do anything or that he cannot work evil. That's not what the text is saying. The text doesn't say that the enemy was annihilated or exterminated. It doesn't say that. Just say that he was in chains. And chains is a, is a picture, is a symbolism of limitations. Paul and Peter, think about Paul. He was in chains. He was in chains. But he kept active. There was limitation to where he could go, but he kept writing letters, even in chains, preaching the gospel. So the binding of Satan for 1,000 years is Jesus' declaration that his sheep from different folds will come to him. Gentiles will be saved. The church will not be defeated. Satan will not be able to deceive people into fighting victoriously against the church. And that's all we see from the resurrection of Christ today. The gospel reaching the nations. Anthony Huckman, he says, The binding of Satan means that throughout the gospel age in which we now live, the influence of Satan, though certainly not annihilated, is so curtailed that he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations of the world. Because of the binding of Satan during this present age, the nations cannot conquer the church, but the church is conquering the nations. Look at the gospel reaching in Africa, South America, North America, Europe, Asia. That's the victory. That never happened before the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, the millennium, the 1,000 years, refers to the church age, the age of the church carrying out the Great Commission. It's the time that the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world. 
It's way, the way of John in, encouraging the church that their efforts are not in vain. The church will prosper. You don't need to compromise. You don't need to run away from Christ. I know that the persecution is present, but keep persevering. Jesus has promised that his church will continue triumphing. That's what John is helping us to see here. It says the, and the, and the angel threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the 1,000 years were ended. Once again, the text did not, does not say that Satan was either annihilated or that he was unable to perform any harm. It's clear that Satan can and does harm. He's like a roaring lion. A lion in chains is very dangerous. You can put a lion in chains. If you come too close, he's going to kill you, even in chains. So the chains do not mean that he's annihilated and completely ineffective. No, there is a specific reason of the chains, is that he can no longer deceive the Gentiles. Think about before the coming of Jesus Christ. Think about before the coming of the resurrection of Christ. Revelation 23 implies that prior to this binding, the nations were deceived. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how was the world before the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What was the only place in the globe that had the light of God? Israel. You get a globe and you go there to that small area. There was the only area where the light of the gospel had shined. And now think about the world after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Israel was the only geographical national location where the light of the gospel was present. The light of God was present. But things changed. Thomas Schreiner, he says, With the coming of Christ, the gospel now goes to the ends of the earth. In the Old Testament, salvation was confined to Israel, and the nations of the world were deceived. Now the gospel is believed in all nations, and thus Satan no longer deceived the nations as he did in the Old Testament era. He goes on, he says, Unbelievers are still deceived by Satan, but the deception over all nations that characterized the Old Testament time is now lifted, so, this, so that some, some believe from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Satan was bound at the cross of Christ. And that's why Paul says in Acts 14, 16, in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their dark ways. Or Paul says also in Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Because the gospel is reaching everywhere. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The great prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9. We, we always have Christmas card with Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a son is born, a child is given. And we, but you've got to get the whole context of chapter 9 of Isaiah. And that's the promise, the prophecy that this Messiah, he will bring light to the nations. So in Isaiah chapter 9... Let's talk about the coming of the Messiah. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of what? Our Gentiles, better translation. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And he speaks with such conviction of what the Messiah will accomplish that he talks in the past. It's done. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Look at us, brothers and sisters. So, Simeon, when he holds the baby, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Think about the coming of the Magi in Christ's birth. The coming of the Magi was a picture of the light of the gospel starting to spread to all the nations. So the question is, when did Jesus bind Satan? When did Jesus chain Satan so no longer would deceive the nations? We can say that right in the beginning of his ministry, he starts and comes to a, a great degree of accomplishment in his resurrection. But right in his ministry, Jesus is already talking about binding Satan. So in Luke chapter 10, he sends the disciples to evangelize and take people out of the captivity of darkness. And they come, look at, look at chapter, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 says, Then the 72 disciples return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Meaning, victory in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw, fall, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Opa, Revelation 12, Revelation 20. He's not talking about the, the original fall of Satan. He's in the context talking about this fall of Satan, the defeat of Satan with the disciples' victory over the demons. So he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. This unclean beasts here. And over all the power of the enemy. So Jesus speaks of Satan's defeat and loss of power in direct correspondence to the missionary activity of the disciples. The preaching of the gospel to all people was already bringing the fall of Satan. His captivity. In John chapter 12, the context is important also. Because in John chapter 12, we have Greeks, Gentiles, coming to see Jesus. And Jesus says... In the same context, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be what? Cast out. Act below. When that happened? His death and resurrection. Look at that. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people. Not only Jews to myself, the nations will be drawn to him. Once again, we see Satan's defeat in light of conversion of people from all nations. In Mark chapter 3, as we are talking about the binding of Satan, the, the strong man, Jesus declares, he says, but no one can enter. Remember that they were saying that Jesus was casting out demons, that Jesus was delivering people from the kingdom of darkness by the power of Satan. That's what they're accusing Jesus. And he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. What? 
unless he first binds. Here's the same word that we see in Revelation 20. Binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus was plundering Satan's house, releasing people from all nations from his power. And that's exactly what we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul declares that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph over them in the cross. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that with the resurrection of Jesus, Father placed him far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. The author of Hebrews says, look at that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Wait a second, that's the same language of Revelation 20. The conquest of Christ. The New Testament is clear that the binding of Satan came to pass in the resurrection of Jesus. So now the gospel can go forth. Paul says that when he was called by the Lord Jesus, Jesus said to him, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in my name. Brothers and sisters, the book of Acts, the history, and our present lives right now is a clear reflection of the undeceiving of the nations. One scholar says, it's by the cross and resurrection that Satan has been dis- disempowered, thrown out of the heavenly courtroom in one image, confined to a pit in another image. The thousand years delay is an age of grace to allow for the conversion of the nations. Don't misunderstand the text. Don't put things that are not in the text. The text never says that Satan has no power to devastate people. He's a murderer. Paul calls us to put on the full armor. Satan has the power to devour. He can infiltrate churches with false teachings. There is a lot that the dragon can do, and he's doing right now. But there is one main thing that he can no longer do, and that is destroy the church by hindering the gospel of being proclaimed to the nations. That's the age of the gospel proclamation. We see the same thing in Revelation 11, when you have the two witnesses, and God protects them so they can ministry for 42 months. That is the church ministering, proclaiming the gospel. In Revelation 12, we hear the same thing, God protecting the church so he can continue ministering, proclaiming the gospel. That doesn't mean that God is protecting the church physically, but spiritually, so the gospel can go forth. The gospel conquers through suffering, just like the Lord Jesus. Amen? How did Jesus triumph through death and suffering? How did Jesus become the victorious king through the death and resurrection? And the church follows after the head. So during this time, the 1,000 years, the nations are conquered for Christ, and the church triumphs through suffering. So, brothers and sisters, behemoth, Leviathan, have been chained by the warrior Christ Jesus. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Adam was supposed to have get that serpent in the garden, chain that serpent, cast out of that place. Jesus accomplished that. 
Jesus did that. Where Adam failed, Christ conquered. So brothers and sisters, what are we supposed to do with the truth of Revelation 20? What are we supposed to do with this wonderful Easter news that Christ is risen, the gospel has been proclaimed, nations are being undeceived. What are we supposed to do with that? Go find people to debate eschatology? Go and argue about the millennium? I want to encourage you to look around this place. Look around this place. Look. Every time someone is converted, some, every time someone is baptized, we are beholding the truth of Revelation 21 through 3. Peter said, For you were estranged, you were deceived. Same planao, same Greek word. For you were deceived like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We once were deceived in the darkness, the darkness that permeated the world prior to Christ's resurrection. The promise of revelation to any dear congregation is that the gospel of the resurrected Jesus will not fail. No matter how much we suffer, no matter how much assault that we receive, no matter how many of our brothers and sisters are killed because of the gospel, the gospel prevails. And we see this throughout the world. And as I look around this room here, I see Revelation 20. That's the best apologetics. We have people from Brazil, Honduras, Mexico. Where else? Where else? Salemites, people whose grandparents came from Europe, Greece, Romania, Ireland, brothers and sisters. How can we suddenly not be amazed by the truth of Revelation 20? This is the proof of the resurrection of Christ. And that's why Revelation says, come out, come out of Babylon. Come out of Babylon. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ Jesus, you have not embraced Jesus as your Savior, as your King, the the call is come out of Babylon. This place is heading to the lake of fire. And with the dragon, the Babylon is this world system that promises you a bunch of things, but just gives you death. Come out of Babylon. Come out of the grave. Babylon is a picture of grave. Come out of there. Christ has raised, and he is giving power to his people to get out. Come to the kingdom of light. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the citizens of Babylon were provided the possibility of liberation from the destructive and the dehumanizing bondage of the beast and false prophet. Come out of Babylon. That's why this book is so powerful. It's taking the eyes because we can become so enticed and in love with the world and we forget it's a harlot heading to the lake of fire. And just say, get out of there. 
And for Christians, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is commanding you to invest your life in the only thing that Jesus promised, triumph. And that is the gospel proclamation. There are many places they still need to hear the gospel of Jesus, and Jesus has guaranteed a prophet. And I want to encourage you to dream big things. Stop dreaming about your living your dream and your dream house and your dream car and your dream job and your dream life. Jesus never promised to prosper your marriage. He never promised that your bank account will be prosperous. But he promised one thing, the prosperity of the gospel throughout the world. And we are proof of that. We who were once in the darkness of Babylon and Satan, the dragon, by the gospel of Christ, by the binding of Satan, we have come to the city of God. So use your life for something that Jesus has promised complete victory. Your finances, your time, your effort. Stop wasting it. Stop wasting it. As you travel to other places, as you talk to missionaries, talk to missionaries in China, missionaries in Africa. Last time I was in Africa, I had a pastor begging, I need people. I need people to work with me, pastor. The harvest is great, but I need laborers. That's Revelation 20. That's the time. We sang early, earlier, through the ages gone before, through the trial and the sword, many saints and martyrs conquered though they died. It's, though they, still we are holding the cross, cross, crossing oceans and suffering loss. Amen? And then you might ask, what if I go and the Muslims behead me? What if I go and the Hindus kill me? What if I go and I die in North Korea? What if suffering comes to me? Then you got to read verses 4 through 6. Because as soon as you die in Christ, you are ushered into the palace of the king. And you start reigning with him in a very different way. But I don't have time to go through verses 4 through 6. That's going to be another time. Father, we bow before you and we... Praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your work of redemption. And what a, a blessing it is to be living during this millennium age, Lord. Oh, Lord. How many people perished in the darkness because the gospel had not been proclaimed yet. Lord, help us to take this truth to heart. Rejoice that Babylon has no power over us. That we belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, help us. Help us to proclaim the gospel here in Salem, in Oregon, in other places, in other nations, Lord. Because this is the time. This is the time. The time is coming when we will not have the opportunity anymore. But now is the time. Now is daytime. So help us. Help us to invest our time, our effort, our money, our lives in what promises profit and guarantee of triumph 
And that is the proclamation of the gospel during this age. Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that you would bring them to you. Save them. Help them to see the beauty of Christ. This majestic warrior and king who cares for his people. Help them to run to you. Help them to come out of Babylon. This place of hopeless, death, misery. And come to Christ, the one who has life, life in abundance. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.